Welcome, everyone, to the episode of the show many of you have called uh, extremely enjoyable and um, riveting. Uh, it's it's a GG No Reread. Uh, we're, we're here, me and Liv are back, and we're here to talk about uh, books and video games and the ways they intersect. Liv, thank you so much for coming back. Well, thank you so much for having me back. I love to be part of something uh, enjoyable and riveting. Oh, yes. Well, I mean, people have said this many times, and in fact, like, those exact words, too. I, I, I can't find the quotes, but um, they're out there. Yeah, I believe it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I'm excited about this episode because you have uh, – this this book is um, – I mean, I've, the game I've written about and we've talked about – I've talked about in this show. But I will say that the book is uh, very much uh, something you brought to the table as opposed to something I brought to the table. And I'm super excited to talk about it because it's very good and it is very different and it's it, it does a lot of things that I feel like um, – Grad students get yelled at a lot for not doing, which is it provides a female voice. Um, it is not it's not tokenizing and it is not American. So um, all of those things are true and it's very cool. Um, it's it, the book is called A Constant Hum. Uh, we'll talk about the game in a second. But uh, I mean, first off, before I jump into all that, how are you? <laughs> I'm doing great, Trevor. How are you? Wonderful. I'm good, too. Um, I, I realized I, I wanted to ask how you were because we haven't talked in a little while. Um, although we did talk pre-show, but still, it's not the same. Um, yeah, no, I'm good. I, um, I, I'm happy to, to be doing this again. Um, I won't dwell on it much because uh, I said I wouldn't, but it's really great to be able to read again. It's, um, it's, a, it's a, an, uh, not a, an oft-discussed element of, of grad school burnout, um, especially for those of us who finish grad school. But boy, when you're done with grad school, do you never want to read again in your entire life? Um, and so it's nice to actually kind of like force myself back into doing this. Uh, Kristen makes fun of me all the time for not reading um, when she reads all the time. So it's nice to be able to uh, get back at her and, uh, and read a book. Yeah, it's interesting even for me that uh, my grad school texts were obviously more medical and I never got to read for fun. Mm. So my thing was whenever I came out of grad school, I would feel guilty for reading novels because if I was spending time reading, then why wasn't I researching or reading something, um, you know, medical nonfiction? Yeah. No, that totally makes sense. I mean, it, it is a it is absolutely a. Um it's absolutely one of those things where you're you're constantly being asked to um, where you're constantly being asked to actually um, be productive even in your non-productive moments, mm-hmm. um, which is like very unfair and frustrating. Um, and m- millions of people have talked about this. This is nothing terrifically new for me, but I think you're totally right in saying that, like. It is like the the sort of reading exhaustion or what you want to do instead of what you were doing in graduate school differs depending on what you actually did. And um, I totally relate. Just like being forced to read novels as much as I did, even though I loved them, made me just never want to read a novel again. It ruined it ruined my ability to enjoy novels. And so coming back to them and actually enjoying one was a treat. Yeah, and I hope that by by having this show that maybe we'll play some small part in taking away like the I feel like there's some pressure to talk about books in a certain way when mm. historically that's really not the case. Like books are, 
you know, for everyone. Fiction is for everyone, and they weren't historically held to this high standard that only certain people could talk about them and in certain ways and in certain tones. Um, so Definitely. Let's talk about video games. Let's talk about books. Let's talk about them together. Yeah, I'm excited. I think I yeah, I think definitely video games and books do not uh, meet enough, and and that's not on video games and books. That's more on us. So let's let's be part of the solution. <laughs> this is the problem that everyone has been asking for a solution for. <laughs> <laughs> this is the one. Uh, <laughs> There's no other problem that people want a solution for specifically <laughs> right now. Um, so I'm happy to provide it. Um, you're welcome, everyone. Your, your, your national nightmare is over. Um, I've never actually been able to say it in the middle of an actual national nightmare. Uh, it's, it's exciting. International uh, nightmare, which huh? is a pro- an international nightmare, which That's is right. appropriate for having an international episode. That's that right. That we're talking That's, about. Oh, it's so both, right. Uh, talking about both Colorado from Firewatch and Australia in a constant hum, specifically like uh, the Victoria region of Australia. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, so tell me a little bit, so you're, you're willing to give some background on uh, a constant hum, but um, I feel like you should also, if, if possible, uh, give some background and I didn't ask you to do this. So if I'm putting you on the spot, you can just tell me no, but um, I would love some background on just like Australia too, because um, due to uh, caring about someone very much who lives in Australia, um, you know more about it than I do. And I care about people in Australia, but not in the way where <laughs> I have visited them. So I don't, yeah. I don't necessarily know as much as you do. Um, yeah, and I don't ever want to speak as an authority on Australia, but, um, so A Constant (laughs) Hum by Alice Bishop is a, um, book that is comprised of, um, short stories, flash fiction, what we talked about is a little bit of, like, poetic prose, um, that all centers around either the events or aftermath of the Black Saturday bushfires in, Victoria in 2009. So this is not about the bushfires that occurred this year that were, you know, news making for international audiences. Like there's always bushfires in Australia. That's part of the fire history of Australia. But these ones that overwhelm um, and go beyond like what's the natural history. So um, Alice Bishop is from Christmas Hills in Victoria and her family lost their home in these fires. And so um, listening to her talk about how this was written is like she, after the fact, like in the couple of years after the fact was writing a lot of fiction that was maybe not so good. That was just like very emotionally charged as a response to it. But over the years still wanted to write through this and have a way to talk about it. And so in about 2018 is whenever she actually like, sold this to um, sit down and write it as mm. we got it today. Yeah. And actually, as you say, Christmas sales, I just realized that um, <laughs> it's like ridiculous, but I just realized that the last story, I think it's the last story in the collection is about her. Um, I didn't realize that. I, I didn't even realize it, even though the person's name that the narrator is called by name, Allie, I didn't think of that as a nickname for Alice. So um, very exciting to realize that. Yeah, I'm not 
100% sure that it's supposed to be like auto. I mean, I think that it's supposed to be autobiographical, but I'm not sure that it's like supposed it, it, to be. This is my real lived experience. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm, I don't know the, the facts on that. Um, but the way that bushfires um, work in Australia, are you familiar with the fire history of Australia? Uh, not the whole history. I do understand that that um, it is it is very true that you just end up with a ton of fires in Australia. Like that's mm-hmm. just like a, a fact of life. Yeah. So it's a little bit different than California fires, which are, um, I think, more primarily man-made. But the way that Australian flora and fauna developed was um, tied together from, like, its its birth with, like, this fire history where, um, like, the gum trees, eucalyptus and acacia burn. And then whenever they drop their leaves, that's how new things grow. So okay. it's part of the, the natural cycle of things for there to be bushfires. Um, and then obviously due to climate change, things have gotten worse. And then also with colonization of Australia, that um, whenever Europeans came over, that they um, worked on the land agriculturally in ways that were um, obviously detrimental to the, the natural cycle of things. <laughs> I mean, go on. That's that's never <laughs> happened in history. Like, <laughs> but yes, no, it, it totally makes sense. And like, I think... That's really interesting because there's there's a lot of moments like a couple of things you said clarify moments in the text for me. The one being how much they talk about towards the end that this ended up on TV and other places. Mm-hmm. Um, they're like amazed that it got coverage elsewhere. Like you, it was on TV even in the UK and America, and like especially coming from a world where Australian news is a little closer to us due to having friends on Twitter and stuff like that. But then also because of the bushfires of late. Um, that was a little hard to, to parse, but now I realize like, oh, okay. So like in the, in a typical sense, like I'm, I'm just in a weird, um, just in a weird situation. And then the, the other thing that, that you said that that really kind of clarifies things is everyone sort of like talking about, I mean, obviously the, the references to climate change throughout we'll talk about, but those totally uh, made sense, uh, with the fire, but knowing that there's a natural fire, um, uh, uh, cycle already and that this is an intensification of it explains a lot of sort of like the more guttural fear. Mm-hmm. And just like that, it's then also a longstanding social issue mm. that um, that colonization has made this worse in, in an almost um, unfixable way on top yeah. of climate change, which is also um, you know similar sources it's not aboriginal people that are the the primary source of climate change uh no no not typically that's that's true um interesting so so i i think this makes a lot of sense um what else i mean what else is there to say about um like this book in particular and like why, I mean, even, even like thinking about why it's kind of important to you, like, why did you, why did you think to, to bring this to us? Um, I, I think that, um, like you were talking about how, um, that at the end of the book that it was talking about like, Oh wow, people are actually aware of this in the, the UK or the U S um, these fires that, 
I feel like, and it, it is a little bit different because we have friends in Australia now, but growing up in the U.S., that Australia never really seemed like a real place. Like it was, yeah, very uh, fictional. Um, yes. and that it wasn't people with their own, um, like unique culture. Like they seemed more like kooky Americans than someone that had like their own lives and style of doing things. Um, so I think that I've just been the past couple of years learning more about, um, about their culture and then learning about the history, obviously, um, my plan is to to move there eventually. So I feel like it would be unfair to move to a place without trying to understand um, the people who live there and like their um, social history, their environmental history, anything that I think would be important to, to be respectful of coming into a country. That makes sense. I mean, especially because like, if you read the, um, if you read the uh, acknowledgements at the end of the book, it is like it's very clear that there is like a lot of I mean, Bishop herself and we talked a little bit before the show before the show started. And we'll talk a little bit more during the show. But like Bishop herself is like pretty clear about um, like the 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 deep historical roots of, of uh, Australia and sort of like the imperial history and and the the history of just the the island in and of itself and it's like it is a very deep history in a way that i think like you know people who grew up with crocodile dundee or whatever don't necessarily have and i i mean that's i'm not saying like all you people who did um that's me like i i truly did not have any real sense of of what was going on with australia up until i mean even now i would say it's fairly cursory but, you know, up until recently. Yeah, I think also like what um, what Bishop does in the acknowledgments is like paying tribute to the traditional owners of the land, um, which is something that I think that many most Australians would agree that um, Aboriginal people are still not treated how they should be treated. Their land was never ceded. But one thing that the government does and that people do when speaking anywhere is um, like typically like if you would be starting a lecture or starting a government meeting that you open it with um, acknowledgement of who the land historically has belonged to. And Interesting. That's, that's throughout Australia. Hmm. And I mean, is that something that like, I mean, I don't want to, I don't want to, if you don't know, you can tell me you don't know. Cause, um, I don't know how complicated this is or not, but like, it seems to me that, that like that acknowledgement then could be seen as fairly meaningful if people actually like mean it when they say it or mm -hmm. fairly like sort of just like meaning less if people are just saying it to say it like, do like conservative, uh, people who like don't care about the rights of aboriginals say that or is it just like is it is it just people who would actually like care yeah i mean it's definitely both it is like a legal i think a legal requirement when mm. in some government meetings that they they have to do that that's something that they've agreed on doing at a um like at a federal level um hmm. so there's definitely plenty of people who don't believe the words that they're saying but i think that um many people um, do do care about it and say it in ways that they're not like they're not 
legally compelled to and try to talk about it more often. And yeah, I that's what that, I that's sort of the feeling I got from Bishop. So that's why I was asking, like, if it was like sort of a, a you know, totally meaningless thing or if there was some sort of like uh, actual effort uh, towards like, you know, a, a, ver- a fairly, um, I don't know, not meaningless, but like not enough uh, of a of a of a remediation, but like an initial one, like certainly more than what the U.S. does. Yeah, definitely more than what the U.S. does. I think that, um, yeah, it's a little bit of both. Okay. Um, cool. Well, I am. I, that's all super exciting. I, 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 I am. I feel very educated. Thank you, Liv. <laughs> um, so this book takes the form of short stories, uh, and we were talking a little bit about this. Um, I was saying that it reminded me of the way that a lot of, um, reminded me of the way a lot of, um, graduate school uh, work starts out. But the difference between um, Bishop's work and graduate school work is that, I mean, this book to me was so, um, I don't know, it felt so accomplished and so easy uh, in its prose, but also like, I don't know, it had a kind of confidence and a sort of like speed and impact that I think was like extremely good um, and and sort of like unique. what did the what did the short story um, form do for you? Well, it kept a certain speed to it, and I think it in that way kind of echoes how you you deal with these um, like natural but also man accelerated disasters. That it's mm. not an all at once thing. That it is this um, multi layered timeline for figuring it out in the moment and then the the aftermath and dealing with it. So there's times where it's um, long and drawn out and just depressed. And sometimes it's short and snappy and fast. And I think that it mimics um, the grief reaction to, to the fires in that way. Mm, yeah. One of the things I really liked about this too, is that it didn't, force closure at any point like none of the stories were about like someone finding closure and feeling good about the experience like there were some where they kind of admitted i think there was one that started um you know later on she'd admit that the fires brought something to her i think it's um aftermath starts that way the story about um the woman uh leaving her partner who had Mm -hmm. uh run away from her instead of run away from her away from the fire instead of coming to help her um and like there are instances like that where the the text kind of tells us like yeah you know there's there is a there is a remediation or like a I'm using that word too much there is a, a sort of like uh, acceptance uh, a kind of like um, closure at the end of this but like that's well down the line and we're not going to talk about it I thought that was smart because like I feel like a lot of books uh, rush that especially when they're about trauma like you, you need some sort of closure and this book doesn't really offer a lot of that. Yeah, and I think that um, not to jump the gun, but it is similar <laughs> to to Firewatch in that way. Yes, that it doesn't give you um, what you think you'll want from it. It gives you something um, more real. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and I, you know, I, I thought what was kind of like just like with Firewatch, um, you know, Firewatch uh, indicates that it's going to be going one direction and uh, goes a different direction. And I think one of the indicators in this book that 
I read as more uh, poppy than it ended up being was the the um, the switching between shorter chapters and longer chapters. Mm-hmm. Like I really thought that would be something that led to a sort of kind of closure because then a lot of shorter fiction, a lot of like long and then short, long and then short uh, structures tend to be that where like there'll be a long story and then the the short one will be like the the avenue for closure because it can be short, kind of snappy, poetic, uh, and 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 more true to true to life that way. Um, but again, like it's not there. It's just like she's she's not giving that to you. <laughs> Yeah, I think that one thing that escaped me a little bit, and maybe you have some perspective on this, is that the um, the book is set into different divisions based on like directions of wind. Like there's a southerly section, easterly section. Am I correct on these? Yes. Um, there's a north. The, the last section's northerly. Middle section's southerly. I think the first section's eastern. Yeah, and I'm not sure I got exactly the mood changes associated with each of those, if that's what it was, or... Yeah, I, I kind of got it as, like, a structure more than anything. It seemed like, I mean, the stories, I don't think, I don't think there's, like, it wouldn't be fair to say the stories could go in any order. I don't, I don't want to say that, because um, mm-hmm. there is clearly a sort of, like, rising and, and building thing. I, I felt like maybe it was a sort of, like push towards conclusion because the way the wind shifted in the book seems to be the way it seems to be linear, uh, with the wind, with the way the wind shifted during the fires. So like the, the last shift, the northerly shift was Mm -hmm. the last time the wind shifted, which is, um, what one of the the characters, uh, says in, in the, in the last book, or the last one of the last stories, he says he hasn't talked to his wife since the wind shifted and starts wondering if that'll become, a recurring phrase in his life if his wife has, has, has died. Um, and yeah, like the, 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 I, I got, I took it as like the progression of the fire and the progression of the stories. Um, uh, but I mean, I, there's, I didn't notice anything different between the characters. All the characters lost something significant. Um, mm-hmm. none of the characters were, um, we didn't get a lot from characters who were like uh, uh, on the periphery trying to like um, deal um, uh, vicariously in loss. Like the the one woman's uh, sister who was saying like, were there any DVD sets that I loaned you in the house and mom's wedding <laughs> dress? And then she's like, I'm just trying to deal with my loss too, you know? Um, <laughs> like that was all secondhand. The, our protagonists were always people who had lost something who were like deeply struggling with the, the, the loss of a home or family or both. Mm -hmm. Um, so I didn't catch a tonal shift necessarily. To me, it felt like a fairly consistent tone throughout. Yeah. And it definitely starts already in the aftermath. Like one of the, the first stories is about, um, it's, from the perspective of someone at a trial for an arsonist who, yeah. um, who and, had set off one of the, the fires associated with the, the Black Saturday fires. And this was one of the things that made me think that this was going to be a more linear and like plot-based book than it was. Because this starts things off. I think it might be the – I think – I'm going to actually go to my table of contents and check. But I'm, I'm fairly sure this is either the first story or the second story. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, let's see here. Sorry. I'm using, I'm using my wife's Kindle. Um, 
which is yeah, uh, that is one thing about reading Australian literature is I I read a lot more ebooks <laughs> than expected. Um, I like because not I, everything I was, is published in the U.S. I was surprised how much I enjoyed reading uh, the Kindle. Um, it is not a it's it, this is not an ad for Kindle. It's an ad for me growing up and uh, and reading on ebooks too. <laughs> um, yeah, so this would be. Um, so the first one is prevailing. Um, oh, I'm sorry. That's the first section is prevailing. So it must have been a prevailing wind, a southern wind, a northern wind. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So there's uh, the first one's about a bunker. That's the and then just a spark is the second one. So like, just a spark is the one you're talking about, and that one felt like, oh, they're going to go into this and we're going to see more of this character and we're going to like we're going to see scenes based on, you know, like the, the, the kind of like uh, tertiary characters, the secondary characters in this trial, like the trial felt like a set piece, right. That would be focused on throughout. And it's dropped instantly. Like you don't hear anything more about Holden in the trial. Um, The word Holden shows up at the end of the book. Uh, Holden being the the sort of firebug that we're, we're told has started the fire. Um, I think Holden at the end of the book is Holden is one of the major Australian car companies. Oh, yeah, yeah, so yeah. no, no, no. I'm sorry. Ford. I didn't mean to suggest that he shows up. The word shows up and it felt significant to me, but I don't know. I didn't know it was a major car company. So, yeah, I think it's ignore how, me on that one. I think it's their Ford. Oh, OK, OK, OK. I think. Um, but that I mean, since it was at the end of the book and it was at the beginning, too, I was I like circled it and I was like, oh, they said it again. Uh, <laughs> that's the kind of scholar I am. Uh but yeah, no, it's like that whole uh, courtroom storyline is is dropped. It's like it doesn't come back. And that was when I sort of like got the feeling of like what this book would be about and how it would approach itself. Like it is not – it's not telling a complete story. Like it is not and, – and I don't mean that as a critique. I mean it like it is pointedly not trying to tell a complete story. It is flashes of experience. Mm-hmm. And across a, a variety of of viewpoints, like there's a lot of people that are, um, you know, about Alice Bishop's age, like in their their twenties, thirties. But there's also perspectives from much older people, from seniors. There's a a handful of stories from children and teenagers, mm-hmm. um, and I think that's really interesting too. And I felt like all of the the young youthful viewpoints really, you know, nailed exactly what it feels like to be a kid and like not really understanding what's going on and just um, getting little pieces of information and trying to, to make a a narrative that works out of it that helps you understand. Yeah. The story about the kid who's like best friend had lost a friend and lost their house and, and, and sort of like their father was in the hospital, but they just like were not, it was just difficult for them to actually parse any of that uh, because they were like, you know, eight uh, was fantastic. Like it just like it, it really, really felt honest about like how a kid would handle this stuff, which I think is like very difficult to nail. Like either you're precious or, like you know, it, it can be really tough. Yeah. And just like it talks about like how children hear things and then like create their own narrative to like make sense of that like the Mm. the story you're talking about he's talking about like how his best friend's dad was rescued and like their version of the story is that like oh the helicopter swung down and like dad grabbed the rope and like pulled himself up 
And then it's like, but then I heard someone else say that he was taking a bath when it happened. And like, you realize like, oh, like his dad was like submerged in water so that he wouldn't get burned alive. Like, right. That's, you know, the real story behind like what these kids are understanding of it. Yeah. And it's like, it, there, there's also a moment in there where, where the, the narrator, she says like, I, I think like, I want to, I want to say something about this. Like I want to, I want to make fun of him for saying the thing about like something like, uh, his his house had an electric fence around it and only he and his dad could get in. And she's like, I, I wanted to make fun of him about that because that's definitely not true. But mom told me to be nice. And it <laughs> it's like it's totally that thing of being a kid where like even in trauma, you're like, I don't think so. I think you're lying. Like, I, <laughs> I don't you know, that's that's absolutely not true. Um like that, that kind of impulse to to kind of disprove the you know the my uncle works at Nintendo or like even better the impulse to actually produce that is is super true to life and I think that's like to be able to depict that uh, sensitively so that both the the teller and the hearer come out as human that's uh, pretty pretty impressive. Yeah, and some of the other stories from like children's viewpoints are from like someone who has lost things where. Um, other kids in their school have not and so then they become the kid that trauma happened to and like having to reckon with that socially yeah on top of like now being in i don't know if they were in foster care maybe um or exactly what what all yeah that was the that was the one with the um uh um um the kid who like uh, snuck out of shop class to go smoke weed by the Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah yeah like he was sort of already an outcast, I guess, or like kind of like different. Um, he likes a shop teacher, but doesn't so much like his other teachers. And like people are, people are, are mocking him not only for like, you know, normal high school kid stuff, but they even seem to be mocking the fact that his house burned down. Like it's, it's, it's dark what the, what this kid seems to be going through. And like, it is, it is, you're right. Like part of it is he is like marked as the kid who lost something, which makes him different. Yeah. Which I think, um, for anyone who has been to high school is immediately understandable. <laughs> hopefully, hopefully everyone listening to this has been to high school. I don't um, want to make any judgments. I mean, I don't judge you if you haven't been to high school and like you're an adult or something. That's okay. Um, I just think it would be weird if you were listening to, to this podcast that you were like 11. Um, I support our Roblox audience. I mean, I hope you're here and I hope you're enjoying it. And like, um, <laughs> Definitely, you know, don't sign up for the Patreon unless your parents say it's okay. Like, I don't want to get anyone in trouble. But, uh, but no, I mean, like, it's it's uh, you're you're totally right. Like, it is it is a very high school thing. And, and again, like to go back to the kind of like normalcy of it all, um, or like the the kind of weird uh, pseudo normalcy of it all. The the feeling that like oh yeah like even the normal sort of like social gymnastics of high school go on after this terrible, terrible event. It's just like, it makes it feel much realer, right? Like it's, it's not fun. Like it's not something you want to think about, but it absolutely makes it feel like a, a, a fully fleshed out world. Yeah. And like we've talked about before, denies you that, that sense of closure because reality, reality does go on. Yeah, and in fact, like, doesn't even let you get the the feel good idea of like, oh, these kids are gonna rally around this other kid. Like, it, in fact, like, the idea of like a feel good rallying around is constantly undercut. In, insofar as like, every time a hero is brought up in the book, 
it is with the utter cynicism of the person who has actually been in the event and like is not convinced there were any heroes, just people's kind of surviving. Yeah, I think that, um, and I saw that Alice Bishop talked about this briefly this week, that mm. there's some echoes of like what she's talking about in A Constant Hum and what we've seen in like the response to COVID-19. Okay. Um, and I think part of that that I get from from reading the book is just like about how worn down everyone is and how quickly everyone's worn down, especially um, medical personnel and care workers that you have to immediately become numb and you can't, there's no way to like possibly process everything that's going on at the level that it deserves or else you'll just so quickly be, be overwhelmed. Yeah. There's a story um, I think around the middle where, um, and, and uh, if anyone's frustrated by us just referring to these as stories, like there, there's probably 30 stories in this book, maybe more. Like it really is like the, I think intentionally the stories, titles and, and character names and all blend together. It really feels more like you're just kind of presented with a mass of, of like people and their stories. Like it, it, it is a little overwhelming to try and remember them all. Um, but like, so like I would, I would argue, and, and you can disagree with me, Liv, if you'd like, but I would argue that the actual titles and the people and the stories, they matter, but like in terms of an exegesis, it's almost like they, they pointedly do not like the, the actual details are much less important than the overall picture. Um, I could be yeah, wrong I don't, about that. I don't think that the, the, the facts are that the literal facts are like the facts that you're supposed to come away with. I think the facts that you're supposed to come away with are the, the experiences. Yeah. 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 So it's not like, that's a really, really good way of putting it. So it's not like, Oh, like here's this person's name. Here's their livelihood. Here's this, that, and the other thing. It's more like, like, here's the, here's the feeling of, of X. Here's the feeling of Y. And that's definitely what I came away with as opposed to like names, dates, you know, who, what, when, where, how, um, but yeah, like the there's a there's a story where um, it's a, a caregiver is visiting a um, a man who lives in the bush and they haven't heard from him in a while and uh, it's pretty clear he's going to lose his feet and he just like doesn't really know um, mm-hmm. like he, he he feels fine but his feet are sort of becoming necrotic and uh, the way she handles it is like very different than the way. Um, the the sort of like uh, medical student caregiver who comes to help him handles it, and it's very different from the way he handles it. And the way she describes all this is as a uh, a series of numbnesses, right? Like his numbness is different than her numbness. His numbness is physical. Her numbness is like emotional. And then the the medical doctor's numbness is professional. And like it's just like a a really good way of describing what happens during crisis, which is like people find ways to um get past the stuff that is worst for them um, in the ways they have to. Mm-hmm. Because in all of this, uh, yeah, like we've said, everything is still going on. You still have to move on to the next day in some way. Right. Yeah. And, and, and in fact, like, I think this is helpful if like, if people are, uh, struggling, which I know a lot of people are like, this is actually, I I should say like this, uh, you know, obviously content warnings apply, but like, 
I would say this is a therapeutic book to read in some ways um, mm-hmm. for for dealing with COVID-19 uh, in that, like, you get to see people who dealt with a literally apocalyptic scenario and are living sort of like in the aftermath of it, seeing their world completely changed. And you know sort of by the way that the book is written that they do go on and like sort of continue to live. So there's a sort of like acknowledgement this does impact and change everything. It doesn't shy away from that. But it also points to a uh, a kind of like uh, – not to, not to be too clinical, but a narrative future. Mm-hmm. And not that it forgives everything that – that people do in the, in the midst of a crisis, but it does lend, you know, leniency to, to the things that people feel like they, they have to do. Um, as far as like, there's, you know, a story where, um, uh, someone who, who has some horses, um, has to, to shoot them, to put them down, um, because she doesn't want them to be burned alive. And they're, there's a series of um, like how animals are treated in this, in this text. I think animals are a big part of it and pets are a big part of it. Huge part um, of it. You actually said when we were texting about this, that like, uh, yep. That, that, and, and just for those listening who don't think that me and Liv are friends, we do text. <laughs> Why uh, do you always say that people think we're not friends? Who do said I say that? that? Do I, I, I only say that cause I think it's ridiculous and no one would say that because I wouldn't be friends with someone as cool as you. Oh, okay. I mean, that's that's honestly why I say it. I thought that was why it was a funny joke. But uh, <laughs> I won't say it anymore. I didn't realize that that was a joke I told more times than not. Um, anyway, uh, no, we were texting about this and like, and you were you were saying that like the the flora and fauna, the sort of like uh, persistent mentioning of them and reminding like, I think the way you put it is that you can't understand bushfires without understanding it via the flora and fauna. And I think you're right. Mm-hmm. Like the a lot of the signifiers about this fire are like the flora and fauna disappearing. Like the, the fact that there's no brush, the fact that you don't hear the birds that you used to. And then also like the things coming back or like, you know, the, the things that you find, um, that, you know, are, are, are signs of one thing or the other, either they're, they're sort of like invasive species or species that you want to have coming back. It's very, it's very interesting the way that works. Yeah, I think that the the title is very smart. I I do like the title Constant Hum. It's great. Just, um the way that it relates both with like the the natural hum of things that you expect like it, it constantly talks about the sounds that the birds make. There's many references to the the currawongs and then also to like the sounds of wind and the and the trees and that there's this hum both before and after and it, it takes different tones, whether it's reassuring or um, points to something that that's missing. Yeah. And it, it, it's, it's great too, because there is a story where the constant hum, uh, like the, the titular constant hum appears where like, it's about um, uh, basically talk like it's a, a family that is um, after the fire, just kind of like dealing with all sorts of stuff. And one of the things they're dealing with is um well, one of the things they're dealing with is that the the father in the family is um, remarried and wants or dating someone new. I'm not sure. Uh, but the, the the narrator, the girl's parents are split. And so this is a, a conflict for her. But in large part because, like, the the father is very committed to living in the bush and the, the, the 
new wife or girlfriend is not. Uh, she wants to move to the city. Um, this is actually something that comes up a lot as a conflict. And like the in this, like one of the things that happens that pushes their move to the city is there's been an electrical problem. And uh, now there is a constant hum of sorts where like they just hear it all the time. So there's a titular constant hum that totally ties in with the story, right? Where like there's like a persistent problem that no one can quite fix. But you're absolutely right in saying like, yeah, also it is it is just like the hum of everything um, going on around all of the characters all the time. And I think that it um, connects to what we've been talking about with the the timeline of things and that there is a, a future narrative. That yes. This is always it's not like this event happened and it's a one time thing. It's something that um, that living in Australia is always kind of a threat. Um yeah, and it can even, always kind of happen. Oh, it reminds me a bit of, you know, living in South Louisiana, like what hurricanes are like here. That mm. We know that there's a hurricane season every year, and um, there's, there's similar um, debates on staying versus leaving, which is also a point in, in a constant hum about, do you, whenever there's a hurricane coming, are you going to stay in your house? When there's a bushfire coming, are you going to stay in your house to try to, to save it? Are you going to, are you going to leave? Like how important is your house? How big of a threat this is? Um, and you can't really gauge that until it happens. And and so much of it is looking at things after the fact and being like, oh, I should have done this. Was it worth it? Yeah, I think like, and, and also just like the, I, well, I have a number of things to say. The one thing is it totally did remind me of sort of like the, the narrative around uh, Katrina and particularly like when people were talking, like there's a, there's a, um, I think it's called the stranger. Um, it may not be the, the short story that focuses around this character's interaction with someone who thinks he's not from around the, the bush when he is in the bush uh, and he has lived there all, all his life, but he's sort of like visiting the wreckage of his home. And this guy sort of tries to, intimidate him and says like oh my home didn't get burned like i was i was fine like the kind of dynamics around being from a place uh moving uh, talking to friends who moved to new orleans after katrina and how there is a distinction between living before katrina and after katrina like the ways that natural disasters shape a community i i, I thought about that and it's interesting to hear you you bring that up as well like i uh that makes a ton of sense to me um I mean, the other thing I'd say is like, there's also this sense of, and, and people say this about, I mean, they, a lot of people say this about the South and I completely disagree with them. And I, I think they're being racist and regionalist, but you see a lot of like Northern, uh, liberal writers saying like, well, can we just like, can we just like, uh, get rid of the South already or whatever? Um, mm -hmm. cause generally the States vote red. Um, and there is a feeling in the book uh, about the bush with this too, where people are like, should we even like be building in the bush, man? Like mm -hmm. is like, and like what I liked about a constant hum is that the bush was not treated as some sort of like, I don't know, novelty. It, it, everyone who lived there, you sort of got the feeling of why they wanted to live there. And it wasn't like, Oh, they're committed to this, you know, tragically outdated way of life. It was just like, no, it's like, it's what they, what they value, what they like. Like, it's it truly is just an essence of them, um, and I thought that was really refreshing. Given that given that you can like totally get, you know, instances of primitivism and stuff like that, where people are like, oh, like, you know, these people don't know what's best for them. Yeah, 
I think that another thing that that reminds me in um, both in this book, what I've heard Alice Bishop talk about and the response to to Katrina is it is in this book that um, after these bushfires that now they are having more police and more military people come mm. in. Um, and so after the fact, I, I was watching um, Bishop talk about like, that her and her dad were like at their property um, and like, you know, assessing what their house being gone and that they were like stopped by police and like, why are you here? Like, um, mm. and they're like, well, this, this was our house. And that there is now like also they've lost everything. And now they also like have this invasion of people skeptical about them and like these people that shouldn't be there. Yeah. Um, and I think that that's also true with Katrina is like, that disaster brought on um, an influx of like police and military control over like what was already a scary time and just like um, how people were treated as far as like, um, you know, saying people were looters when they were trying to, you know, take care of their family and like doing what they can to survive. And that um, it was taken as like an opportunistic time to have um, police and military intervention. Yeah, I, I, that totally makes sense. Like the, in fact, like the, I'm thinking about, um, boy, I forget, I forget what, what, what this, what, the, which story this was in. It might have been the one with the constant hum, but there's this like, you know, I think it's easy to think that the, um, the response of people after a tragedy like this uh, would be like to want help from all corners and like, please, please government, please come and help us. Like we need, we need people to, to make this better. Um, and there's this deep skepticism of like, well, what are they going to even do? Like the, the, mm -hmm. it is in the constant hum one where they're just like, Oh, like it was a government project that wasn't taken care of. Well, okay. I guess that makes sense. And like the feel, and they're like, Oh, I guess the government's taking it over again. And they're like, I guess we won't see any changes. Like that kind of approach is really, really interesting and reminds, I think, anyone who hasn't lived through this why people aren't immediately like begging FEMA to to come in and take things over. Mm hmm. Absolutely. Um, so, yeah. Uh, oh, uh, before we move on to Firewatch, I wanted to ask you, uh, what did it do for you? I mean, I, I, there there's some obvious uh, um, things to point out, like where um, Bishop clearly, um, you know, uh, attacks is, it makes it sound like vicious and that's not my intention. Um, critiques uh, the way that um, Australian media uh, portrayed like all of the heroes of the, of the bushfire as male Um and all of the, the characters, or not all of, but many, I'd say like all, but maybe like two of the uh, um, narrators in this collection are women. Um, and so like, uh, obviously that's like a critique of, of the, the male-centric approach to reporting the, the bushfire. But I wonder like, could you tell me a little bit about like what that meant to you to have like, mo like almost, almost entirely uh, women narrated uh, short stories? I don't know. I liked it. I don't, I guess I mostly read, um, female authors at this point. So this is, 
um, I don't want to say about par for me, but like I, I like reading from, I like reading female authors who are, are better about, um, writing from the female perspective. Mm. Um, but I think that it is interesting to read, um, I, I think we could consider this historical, um, that a lot of like historical writings and understandings of events in history have been written from the male perspective. Yeah. So it is, um, when it's, it's true that women were there for the rest of history too. And it's just that we don't, um, we haven't had the chance to, to hear the, the women on the ground of these events. Yeah. No, I think, I think that's right. And like, it didn't, I mean, we did talk a little bit, oh, I guess we should bring this up now. We did talk a little bit before the show about how, um, particularly missing in this, there were queer, pers- uh, there was a, a story with a, a clear queer perspective, like things, things did get included that were outside of a sort of like cisnormative or white cisnormative perspective. But you pointed out, and I, I you're absolutely right. Like there is, uh, there is a lack of, um, there's absolutely a lack of non-white voices in this book. Um, what do we, what do we think is the deal with that? Like, do we, is it, is it a matter? I, I, I'm going to ask you what you think is the deal with that. Cause I don't know. Um, I don't know. And I don't know that we know the race of everyone in the story. And True. a lot of it is just, um, assumed that maybe our, our own bias. Um, but in, in any case, it, there's not a lot of attention drawn to race where I think that there probably is, um, racialized reactions to to disasters for sure um in in how people are treated following disasters which i think we've also seen um with covid 19 100 so i don't know that that there's a i don't know i don't i'm not saying that it's wrong that there's a lack of it because i think that um like we did talk about on the show uh before the show started that um it could easily um, roll over into being appropriative and I'm not exactly sure about all of the, um, the, um, care that you would have to put into, um, writing about Aboriginal people. I know that, and this is just like my, my lack of knowledge to know, like if you can write, um, fictional accounts of, of, of death because I know that whenever I've seen Aboriginal art or movies that like there will be disclaimers beforehand. Um, if there's like the name of any Aboriginal person who has died because Mm. they don't, um, and I'm not sure that this is true for everyone, but some people, um, at least don't, uh, don't want to see or, hear the names of people who have died. Oh, okay. I'm not exactly sure exactly what, um, interesting. What that, um, I don't know. I don't want to make any firm statements. No, no, that's that, fine. But I just know that there is care taken into using the names of people who have died. I mean, there's also like in the acknowledgements and we were saying this too, like there is a, there is an extreme, like, uh, not, ex- not extreme in a bad way. There is, there is a, a, an appropriate sort of like, um, commitment to saying like, thank you for, you know, thank you to the people who, uh, definitely like know more about this stuff. Like the, the people who have been here longer than us, like, and, and, you know, the Aboriginal people who know, 
you know, like the 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 way that these fires have been and and the way that climate change is changing them. Like, uh, she absolutely credits them in the acknowledgments. And there's actually like mm-hmm. a story where the an older guy who's sort of like dealing with loss says like we should talk to the Aborigines, and he's like, but like I, I don't I don't you know, maybe they didn't see stuff like this. Maybe this is new. Maybe they do know what this is about. We should be listening more. We should be listening more. And that kind of like that refrain totally works in thinking about the stories in general, uh, but also particularly works from a white perspective in like saying like, stop, stop talking so much and listen some more to the people who have been here before you. Yeah. I would say that she, she is pointing towards listening rather than like wanting to write that perspective herself. Like I think that that would be, antithetical um because i think she does point to to the people that she should be listening to and not to herself Mm -hmm. she's able to tell from her experiences and the people she knows experiences so yeah and she actually like she in the in the i i usually don't read acknowledgments and i'm happy i read these where like the because i don't care about anyone but myself uh (laughs) (laughs) no one has an internal life except me um but like uh the the one thing I, I was really sort of taken by was how she said, like, look, like I, I lost my house in, in on Black Saturday and like um, that was horrible. And, and like I, you know, it was not something that it was easy to get over. But like I can't imagine what it had been like to lose someone. So like, you know, for anyone who did like I, you know, I'm very sorry. And like I can't even imagine what you're going through. And like that kind of like acknowledgement of like, no, I am not the center of this text. Like. Mm-hmm. There, are, there's like way more important people than me to be listening to and hearing from, and that's the point of this book. Is like, it's a cool thing to read. Yeah, it's it's a very good book. Please, please read a constant hum. Yeah, it's it's show. it's not easy to find, <laughs> but you can get it easily on on Kindle, and like the Kindle edition is lovely. It works out great, and it it is easily read. And it's, I mean, if this is something that matters to you with books, it's short. Um, and I prefer short books. I always have. I think they are punchier mm-hmm. and, and fun. I like some long books. And in fact, probably my two, two of my favorite books are extremely long. But like, you know, it's like it's, it's short and punchy and great. And it just it's a it's a lovely book. Yeah, I think that you um, I think that also I don't know what you you think about this, Trevor. Um, I read most of this book uh, out loud to, to my boyfriend is how um we read most of this book I together. also read this book mostly out loud to your boyfriend. Hi. <laughs> <laughs> but it's it's so Australian. Like, you were saying you you didn't know that Holden was a car company. But, like, so many of the things I would get to a word and I'd say, you know, okay, what does this mean? What, is, what does this brand name say to you? Like, what is, what is the suggestion about using, like, this brand name or this store name over something else? That so must I have been very that helpful. I had a... Yeah, I had like footnotes with me the whole time. Yeah, I um, I just kind of gave over to it. I did look up um, I forget what they were like yabos or they were the tiny little lobster guys. Um, yeah, they're like little crawfish. Yeah, and I looked them up and I just found a video of this guy just like grinning and holding to it. It was like catching the biggest yabos, Australia. Watch here. <laughs> I was like, okay, <laughs> this does paint some sort of a picture. I like. And then I just I, I looked up things that I truly did not know. Like I oh oh uh, I still have the search up Duna. I didn't know what a Duna was. And there's like yeah, a, it's just a duvet. Yeah, there's a line where someone's like, I, I couldn't tell what the sky was. It looked like it was covered with a Duna, and I was like, 
Uh, I gotta look that one up. I don't know. I don't know what this image is supposed to convey. Yeah, lots of lots of brand and store names. So it is helpful if you have um, if you can just like round up like an Australian to read this book with you. I think that that's probably the best way. There's to do so it. many on <laughs> Twitter. Australia. You, you can find them now. Christian McRae, I bet, would sit and read this with you. I, Christian's a nice guy. Um, if you can find Matt Brady, he might read it with you. Um, don't have Daniel read it with you. He is uh, he can only read books with Liv. Um, yeah. Uh, he is he is spoken for. He is no longer a free agent. But there's a lot of Australians out there who would love to read your books. <laughs> I, I do think it's funny that um, now he he does not read a ton of books, but he has read both of the books that we <laughs> we have read for right. Gigi No Reread so far. So we can only read um, we can only do books on this show if uh, my boyfriend has already read. So them. all Dragon Ball Z <laughs> novelizations from here on out. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um. Well, cool. Yeah. Um, the one thing I wanted to say before we got into the video game is um, I did – I was surprised at what this book reminded me of because um, I don't think it's a book a lot of people have read and like – but it's a book that is very similar and also extremely different from this book, which is um, uh, Haruki Murakami's Underground. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with Murakami at all. Um, for those of you that aren't, he wrote his most – well. It's not not his most recent anymore, but but maybe his most recent well known book is um, IQ eighty four, um, sort of like a retelling of nineteen eighty four. But he also wrote the um, the excellent, like very very good uh, Wind Up Bird Chronicle. I think that's a, one of my favorite books, um, and a number of other things. Um, Kafka on the Shore. Um, he's just a wild sheep wild sheep chase. He's a wonderful Japanese author, um, but he wrote this book called Underground, which is about the Om Shinrikyo. Um, Sarin gas attacks, and uh, it is it is nonfiction. Um, and he interviews a bunch of people about it. Like he basically he interviews someone from Ohm. He interviews like um, I think in in the end he interviews one of the the attackers themselves, which is pretty interesting. Um, it was sort of like a surprise um, to me when I read it. But like a lot of victims, a lot of people who are on the trains, people who are impacted in more or less ways, and they essentially come out like short like short little vignettes about. These people's experiences like being, you know, involved in this really, really scary thing. And and reading this book, I got the feeling of reading Underground again, uh, but from a but from like a fictionalized perspective um, of a real event. And I didn't think I would get that feeling again. It is a it is, I thought that was unique to that book. So it was very cool to to get the feeling again and also in fiction, which um, I will just openly say I prefer. Um, yeah, I just like fiction more. I is it Murakami who wrote? I think it's after the quake, um, and it's about like a series of earthquakes in I th- in Japan. Mm. Am I making that up? Uh, <laughs> I haven't read it since I was like eighteen. Look but that um, up. That sounds like something Murakami would write. See, um, but yep, yep, that's that's Murakami. Okay, um, but what you were saying about like interviewing the. Um, like one of the the attackers is I think that a book that I think came out last year too. a constant hum came out in 2019. And I think also um, the arsonist by Chloe Hooper Mm. um, is another Australian nonfiction um, about, about one of the arsonists from the same black Saturday fires in 2009. Um, Oh wow. And so the, the black Saturday fires were, um, several bushfires that all came together to, you know, 
be this overall bushfire. Um, so some of them are set by arsonist, and like I think that there are um, like that's not really something that I'm aware of here in in the U.S. or like a, a not in Louisiana that there's not like a ton of arsonist because there's not the ability to burn things very fast here um, just because everything's wet. Um, mm. But I think that that is like something it looks into like the, the perspective of the arsonist, but also along with that, which I haven't gotten the chance to read yet, I would recommend if you're interested in, um, in, in things to go along with this is uh, Darky Mew by Bruce Pascoe, which is about um, the, the agricultural and natural history of Australia and how um, colonization changed, like what, aboriginal people were were doing to the land that was um respectful to the land and how um colonization has changed how these things occur so that the the bushfires are worse now Hmm. that's really interesting yeah i i i mean the the way that the way the colonization and climate change and and all those things impacted uh the way the bushfires operated i mean it's like a fascinating thing for me to read i had no idea um completely surprised me yeah it's definitely not um it would have never occurred to me before like the you know the past year or so reading australian books that fire could ever be a natural part of things because it just seems so purely destructive yeah um here but there are are like plants in Australia that don't bloom in, until there's been a fire and they get started by fire. Um, yeah, it's one so of those. It's one of those things. Um, for me, like I think about it when um, I'll I'll watch you know um, I'll watch uh, nature shows with Tilly and there was one where we were learning about like the prairie and they were like yeah like the prairie you know. There's uh, everything sort of like low underground because eventually the prairie just like it always burns. And so like when it burns, you have to um, you have to make sure that like it's good that it burns, uh, but the grasses need to regrow. And I was like, man, like it actually just burns. That's that's crazy. <laughs> like I had no idea. Um, there's like so much in the natural world that and, and this is like maybe a silly thing to say, but there's so much in the natural world that is like completely a mystery uh to to me um Mm -hmm. and like i'm sure to a lot of people so like it's it's cool to it's cool to see it written out in a way that is like specifically easy to understand because it's written so beautifully and well yeah um australia is just so different too because it did evolve as an island so the the flora and fauna can't really be compared to how things happen anywhere else Makes sense. Um, although I'm going to compare them anyway because uh, it just seems like... <laughs> well, we can compare them. We can't equate them. <laughs> we have to We have to learn more to have a new understanding of how things work there. Now I'm getting confused. I can compare them. Right? I'm just kidding. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Ugh. We can compare anything. That's why we're talking about video games and books. Ugh. Clearly. <laughs> we're we can to compare, compare things. Jeez. <laughs> um no, yeah, I, I agree. And I think I think, yeah, I'm uh this is why this book was really exciting for me. It's um it's different. Like it it is it is something that I was not ex- uh familiar with and expecting, and I was happy to uh be able to experience it. 
Yeah. Um, and okay. I felt uh, similarly, similarly about Firewatch. Finally got around to playing Firewatch. Is that right? You finally did it? I finally did it. And now we're going to talk about it. <laughs> Excellent. I'm so excited. Um, no, I I, um, I think it's good. Like, I, I think... Um, I liked Firewatch. Um, I think it's a very emotionally draining game. I would agree with that. So for if you've gotten to this point in the show and you're now expecting us to talk about Firewatch in a way that if you haven't played the game um, (laughs) would be spoiler free, you are... Sorely mistaken. I'm so sorry. I don't think that there's <laughs> you. You at least got to hear about a constant hum, but no, I don't think that there's any way to talk about Firewatch or to especially talk about Firewatch in relation to a constant hum without um, talking about the ending to the game. So. Absolutely not, because I mean, Firewatch. I think one of the the major selling points of Firewatch is that it is like this game where you are like effectively a park ranger, sort of in in this park trying to. Uh, trying to make sure fires don't uh don't light and you have this uh you know like the, the the plot that they have in the box basically is this is your job and you also have like a uh like there's a, a a woman who is also kind of like a park ranger and you you kind of like start a, a friendship with her and that is like maybe romantic maybe not and and you know like that's that's the whole firewatch thing but to me that is just a way to get you in the door. And then the actual plot of the game is um, something much more interesting and a lot darker. Yeah. So do you want to overview the the actual plot of the game? Yeah, sure. So basically you are a guy who um, your character in Firewatch is just kind of like a, a guy who's you know doing this for a summer uh, sort of thing. Like it's not like you aren't a you aren't a lifer necessarily. <laughs> um and your job is to basically live up in a tower uh, by yourself and uh, watch for forest fires. And if there are any forest fires, uh, you know, radio the appropriate authorities. Um, and you are doing this. It is a lonely kind of isolating job. Uh, but you have um, also made friends with uh, another ranger across the way who you communicate with on radio. And I forget her name off the top of my head, which is not uncommon with me. I forget people's names all the time in games. So can Delilah. You Delilah. Thank you. It's such a good name, too. Um, but, yeah, your friend Delilah. And, like, you two become close. Um, there's some will-they-won't-they they sort of flirtation going on, um, particularly one night where you drink a lot of – you drink a little bit. She drinks a little bit. And you, you're sort of talking over the wire, and it becomes very romantic. Like there, that kind of stuff happens, but like, I would say primarily the plot of the game is in two parts. The one being this part where you're just kind of exploring your feelings for Delilah, the 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 park itself, sort of enjoying this sense of like, oh, you know, what is what is this this interesting natural space? Um, kind of enjoying from a graphics perspective, like all of these. Um, all of these like cool, uh, I don't know. I, I'm trying to think of the way to, to explain this. Like cool uh, vistas. Yeah, yeah, they are vistas. Like it's not, it, it's not hyper realistic necessarily, but it is very, very, very scenic. Like it's fun to look at uh, this game, um, and you're running around and you're jumping, and it's it's great. But the other part of the game is basically you start finding things in the forest. Um, Now, some of this stuff is just like teens 
uh, you know, being teens and you have to yell at them for playing their radios too loud and stuff and they call you old and, you know, it's, it's kind of funny. Um, but some other stuff is very mysterious and seems like codes, like maybe there is a, a secret government conspiracy, that there's there's some there's something going on on Firewatch uh, Park that uh, not it's not called Firewatch Park, but, but what if it was? <laughs> um, uh, there's something going on here. And the uh, it, it seems like it will be one of those games where like the thing the something that is going on is this vast government conspiracy that you and this um, this like b- beautiful sounding woman you never meet her that's another spoiler you never meet Delilah um, are going to uncover together. Um, it's very X Files. It's very yeah. uh, Mulder and Scully it, tension. That is exactly right. Yes, it is very Mulder and Scully. Um, that's really, really, I never really thought about that, but you're totally right. Um, so yeah, I mean like this is, this is the, the plot of the game and eventually, um, you know, you're asking like, well, what happened to the, what happened to the old guy who was here before? Like, what, did he just disappear? What's, what's going on here? And you, you, you go through all of it. Like it, you're, you're trying to like uncover this mystery and what ends up happening is, um, to just like get right to it, uh, you find out that there's no there's no um, mystery. It's simply like the way this kid was um, playing uh, with his dad and uh, who was the the park ranger and sort of like playing with himself, uh, not playing with himself, but playing. God, uh, playing alone. Yeah, playing alone. Thank you. Um, in this park, just trying to trying to have like a fun time, just as a kid alone in the world, uh, in the middle of nowhere. Um, and he, uh, the reason that he is not there, the reason that his dad left so suddenly, is because um, this kid fell down a ravine and died. Uh, you find his skeleton, and so effectively, what you get, and there's there's more that goes on in this game. I'm giving extremely broad overview, but like, and you can fill in with any plot that you think I'm missing, Liv. But like. Effectively, what the story is, is it is it teases you with this conspiracy thing. It seems like a real government conspiracy that's like, you know, goes all the way to the top kind of thing. And then you find out that it's actually just like an incredibly sad story in the middle of this forest. And the game ends as the forest does uh, a forest fire does happen uh, and you are forced to uh, leave. Uh, You have to be evacuated out and um, in being evacuated out. That is your your chance to meet Delilah is um, is gone forever. So you don't get to meet her and uh, and you have to leave. Um, the remains are buried. You don't get any more closure on that. It is um, is very sad, um, but it's just like it's it's perfectly ordinary sadness, not uh, extraordinary or, you know, sci fi or anything. Yeah, I think that probably the biggest thing that we've left out of this overview so far is that the game starts, uh, the prologue for this game is oh, you geez, are... Oh, jeez, I totally forgot about this. Yes, thank you, thank you. <laughs> the reason that you have come to be this, like, uh, summer temp park ranger is... Um, so whenever you're starting the game, you're you're on your way up to, to your fire watch post, um, and it's retelling the story of how you fell in love and, like, meeting this girl at this bar, then... Um, you move in together, then you get to like choose what dog you get. Like it's very emotional about like, okay, then you have a discussion about like having kids when you're going to have kids. And then um, she starts having um, 
some some difficulties, like difficulties with work and starting to forget things. And it turns out that um, she has early onset Alzheimer's. Yeah. Um, so what's happened is um, your your wife has gone back to stay with like full time care with her family in Australia. I um, forgot that it was Australia, too. I think I I think I like I remember that now that you're saying it. And and like the. The opening of the game is so sad to me. And it's so sad. It's the game starts sad and then it it truly just beats at at you for three hours. Yeah, I like I I I mean this is this is it was a long time ago, so don't don't worry. But um, you know my my grandfather uh, effectively was lost to Alzheimer's, um, and like in in like when it when it comes up in pop culture, like it's not something that impacts me like on a daily basis. Like I don't get like. You know, I don't. I'm not sad every day. Like he he passed away in 2009, but or 2005, excuse me. Um, so quite a while ago. But like, when it comes up in in that much of an affecting way, I I generally like as a as a as a self preservation uh, attempt. I just I gloss it. I always do. Like it, it's always the last thing I remember about a game. But yes, that is. Yep, that was really sad. Yeah, it's such a unique form of grief that um, a person can be with you and without you. Yeah, and and like and it's also the the initial flirtation with Delilah um, takes on a kind of guilt as well because like mm-hmm. you are, you know, you are married to someone. Um, you're still married to them, but even though you're estranged, even though you probably will, you know, not be married to them in the way that you have come, become accustomed to ever again. You definitely won't. Um, and like it, but you still feel guilty and your character feels guilty and stuff. It's, it's like, it's an interesting stew of emotion. And like, one of the things I think is, is interesting about it is the, the way it works to intensify the feelings of paranoia like the the sort of like um, weird guilt excitement of of finding something with someone else makes the paranoia feel all the more real. Like, you know, this is a a, a bizarre experience. Uh, why couldn't it just be like a truly bizarre experience, right? Like, why why wouldn't this be happening now when everything else is happening? Um, mm-hmm. At least that's how I felt when I was playing it. Yeah, it gives you a a place to direct your your guilt and your unsteadiness in the world if that there's actually something going on yes that you could be figuring out the facts of for sure and that there is an answer to to the mysteries and horrible horrible things in the world yeah it's um it's it's a dark game like it's i i would say like it's one of those games that i think if you're in like not a good place it might not be the best game to play um, but I do think like, so in the way that it deals with personal tragedy, um, and, and uh, I don't want to say makes ordinary personal tragedy. Cause that's not what either of these books necessarily do, but like it, it, it allows personal tragedy to be real without being spectacular. Let me say that. Like, the way the Firewatch sort of sets you up is that like everything about your personal tragedy is going to be like this incredible reveal and stuff like that. But um, in much like in a constant hum, it doesn't have to be. Um, it can totally just be um, 
it could totally just be like um, normal and and sad and you know contemplatively sad. Um, but I will say like the way it deals with fire and the way it deals with nature is um, quite different. I would say. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. It seems like. I mean, a constant hum is very clearly about being in the fire, being um, in the midst of the fire and its immediate aftermath. Whereas um, Firewatch is all about this distance between you and something that's actually happening. It's all about like the waiting and the separation. Um, Right. And so the fire ends up being kind of like a metaphor for that because you're watching for something that you're not sure is going to come. And you don't want it to come, but you do want it to come. Like it really much is quite a bit like, um, you know, the experience of living with someone with Alzheimer's where you're like, why I want the other shoe to drop here, but if the other shoe is they're going to die or I'm never going to see them again, then like the way I expect, then do I want that shoe to drop? It's the same. Like it's, it's very much like, you know, you're up in a tower watching for a forest fire and, you know, part of you is like, well, I wish I could see some action. And then you're like, I, I really hope I don't. Um, whereas in a constant hum, I felt like the, the fire itself was, you know, not to be all um, Spike Lee about it, but, like, the fire itself is kind of a character. Like, it, it acts as a setting and, like, informs so much about the characters and their experiences that you can't possibly uh, read the book without it. Yeah, it's not about the the opposition to the fire, but, like, the actual way that it's already uh, changed things chemically and the characters and... And also the the idea of like the fires echoing dementia, mm-hmm. like just the the cyclical nature of it, where um, sometimes the fires are going to be happening, sometimes they're not going to be happening, but it's always going to happen again. Um, there's never going to be a time where there's not these fires. Right. Is similar to to dementia, where like at times they'll they'll be coming back, but it's it's going to happen again. Right, lucid um, days that, as opposed to yeah, of course, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, no, I I totally agree. Like, I think I think the it's interesting because like the the way that fire is treated as real versus metaphor is not what I would have expected to be the difference between these two games because or <laughs> these two pieces uh, because Firewatch doesn't shy away from depicting fire at all. Like it, it you know, it cares about the. It, it, you know, like you can absolutely see the way that um, fire operates in the world of Firewatch. And like it's not it's not like one of those things where it's like, yeah, you know, fire, fire will someday happen. But don't worry, it won't happen to you like in an RPG or something like that. And then it does and you have to handle it. Like, honestly, like they're pretty clear, like, yo, you'll probably see a fire. So when the fire shows up, it's very like it's not ordinary, but it's not unexpected. Um, but I would say like. I would say that the um, I would say that the 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 way that um, the way that fire works in this game is much less real than it, it's more as a set piece, right? Like it is more as something that you have to live with as part of a metaphor, as opposed to something that comes into your life and ruins it and leaves you having to figure out the world, um, you know, with it and everything else gone. Yep. Absolutely. <laughs> how dare you agree um, just, with me? <laughs> um, how dragged out this fire is too. Like you, you have a fire going um, 
pretty soon into the game. So the game takes place over 79 days, but you, and you live through like the first like couple, but then there's like increasing time between each day that you live. Um, and there's a, a pretty big fire going on that you, you get to name. I don't know what you named your fire. I named mine the, the flapjack fire. Oh, that's good. Um, I forget what I named it. Probably the Trevor fire or the Tilly fire. Maybe I named it the Tilly fire. Well, you fire. know what? You have choices. It's like the Flapjack fire or oh, right. Delilah or something You're else. right. I didn't name um, it Delilah because I thought that was mean. Yeah. It just seemed rude. But you have like this fire going on outside of your window for like about half the game. And so it's just like this dragged out fire that you don't know when it's going to be put out and you have to, like, to live with for a while. And it's... Um, I think similar to to the ways that the the aftermath is portrayed in a constant hum where there's this dragged out grief period that it takes so long to to clear everything away yeah. after after it's going on that you just because something has happened doesn't mean it it's over. Um so I don't know, everything is just dragged out in both of these um pieces. Yeah, absolutely. I think like the other thing about that is is um, you know both are not at all both are not at all worried to like give you something and then not give you closure for it right like the whole Delilah storyline is very like I would say that is a unique kind of moment in gaming in that you are given as the as the player some sort of like exotic pseudo love interest that you don't know you've never met. She seems interesting and cool. You have a connection and then you never meet her and nothing is done about it. Like that's, it's the opposite of a power fantasy. It's, it's like, it's a, it's a, a fantasy where you're like, you are just left with nothing. Yeah. I'm, I mentioned it on Twitter, like immediately after finishing this game, but truly I just like felt empty inside after finishing this game. It yeah. gives you nothing. It starts grim and it ends worse that you are living as this, as this guy who is being, who has been put through something horrible, but it's not something that's really happened to him. It's something that's happened to his wife. And so he feels guilty for, for leaving her. He feels guilty for um, starting up this like quasi romantic relationship with Delilah. And then you are feeling guilty because you're really the one doing it. And it's like, you feel like, um, I don't I don't think that anyone plays this game and it's like, oh, he has absolutely no right to to flirt with this woman. Um, I think that, you know, like you want him to have something, some sort of connection when obviously like he's he's lost a lot, but it's like not really fully his loss to claim. Yeah, I think um, like the game does a good job of making you feel I felt complicit. I felt yes, I felt complicit, but then I also I I liked the I liked the protagonist. I liked I liked uh our our character. I I thought he was like a fairly nice guy. Like he didn't seem like a bad person. I didn't dislike him and want him to like not have happiness. I wasn't like you jerk. Like I hope everything goes wrong for you. Uh so like you are given that terrible choice of like, well, like what uh, do I do here? Like, what is, what's the right, what is the just thing to do? What's the right thing to do? What's right for him and her? What's, you know, I don't want to do the wrong thing for Delilah too. Like, it's just, it's a, it's a game with no easy choices. I think that for me, um, one of the 
more recurrent themes in both of these are like what people have the the right to do, what people think that others should do in certain situations. So that um, in a constant hum that they're talking about, oh, should these people even be really living in the bush? And if they are living in the bush, should we let them yeah. rebuild there? Like they're bringing this on themselves. And I think that you encountered the same thing with Henry and Firewatch is that um, should should he be able to have this connection with Delilah? Like, should we be allowing him to build something there? Should he be able to rebuild his romantic life whenever he's already had this full romantic life like what does he have the right to to do yeah no absolutely i think like i think that's a a serious question especially because like you know it's it's a what's funny about it or funny is the wrong word but what's interesting about it is that like the the way this kind of like concern or like um uneasiness about his romantic lifestyle is brought up is like by him like he's not he's not okay with it either. Like completely. He sort of like is conflicted about all of this. And like the idea of, you know, not just should I have the right to give this to him, but in fact, like him thinking like, do I have the right to try this again? Like, is it right for me to do it? Not like, again, like going back to the way that Bishop talks about or, or depicts uh, people living in the bush. Like, it isn't as like, you know, backwards weirdos who are like, ah, oh, this is where I belong. Like, I, you know, no one's going to tell me otherwise. It's really as people like very conflicted about like safety versus what makes them comfortable versus who they are, their identity. Like it is all these questions. And like the idea of it leading you back to somewhere dangerous that you're not sure is the right thing is like, I mean, it's a powerful and very sort of like relatable thing. Mm hmm. And just, um, I don't, I think that this happens in the game. I couldn't tell if it was me doing this, but I think it's the game doing this is that throughout the story, like as you're accumulating like more and more of these, um, conspiracy theory, the, the, there's someone that's taking, um, like transcriptions of your radio calls and everything like that. So he's like accumulating this conspiracy stuff, but also like you're, picture of you and your wife keeps getting put up on the desk i don't think i was doing that i think that they do that in the i game. think that's that the it... game yeah that happened to me too so that you're very like still confronted with this yeah this like very dragged out grief process that you're trying to rebuild and figure out things but um still like very confronted by that grief even yeah you know yeah, no, it's a, it's a game that doesn't like and actually this is a way it's very similar to Bishop. Like it's a it's a game that does not let you shy away from any of the ugly parts of it. Like it's not like I'm trying to think of a game that lets you do that. Like I mean like any sort of game with like a AAA game with like a morality system where you can be like, "Well, I only choose the nice things to say." Which is of course what I do in those games. Like you don't want to pick like the ugly things to say. You want to be nice and like have things work out nice for everyone. Um but like in Firewatch as well as Bishop, it's not necessarily that like you're forced to do ugly things. It's that like the the ugliness of the world or like the sadness of the world or the things in the world that you don't want to be there just never quite leave the periphery. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Like there's never a Yeah, there's never a choice that lets you not pursue this relationship or not even really a relationship, but um 
you have to be doing this thing that both feels, I think, good and bad to play. Like you want Henry to to have this connection, but you also feel a little a little gross. Yeah, it's like it's like it 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 feels like something he would want or need, but also something that is just a terrible idea and like you know it'll go badly. It's yeah, that's exactly right. Like it's it feels gross. Um I would like to read one of the the flash fictions from Alice Bishop right now if that's okay with you. Yes, that would be wonderful. I I think this is I, I think that the flash fiction are some of what um, really sticks out in a constant hum that a lot of times whenever I read flash fiction, it doesn't do a lot. And it feels more like it was trying to not say anything um, and just like be vague enough that you can interpret it however you want. But I felt like these were very punchy. Mm. Um, this one's called Maps. It takes the satellites a while to catch up. Our place is still there on Google Earth months after. Every morning I reload the page and there's something calming when I still see no blackened scar through green. It's really nice. Yeah, so I feel like taking that on in comparison to like the the picture of you and Julia, I believe, says wife's yes, name. That, actually, um, funnily enough, that's the name I remember. That's exactly right. <laughs> the um having that picture still there and like that, even though it's like very painful to um, to confront the the loss of things is like re you know reforming that wound over and over again. Whenever you're looking at how things used to be, yeah, I agree. I think like the the flash fiction in a way like I'm 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 looking at some of my favorite like one of my favorite is a uh, float glass, which is um sort of like this this very um short story about the loss of children, which is like not something that's really dealt with. I mean, it's dealt with a lot to the point that it actually like occurred and, and, and it's dealt with in the book. But like, I feel like the flash fiction does that same thing that, as you say, like with the, the picture or like with like, you know, fleeting images, like the last image of the game where you're getting on the helicopter and you don't want to, uh, because you know, uh, you want to see Delilah at another part of the park. Like this is like those last sort of like fleeting images that stick with you dealing with or like having to do the heavy lifting for a lot of the emotional elements because like to actually sort of like draw them out and do them as a long narrative thing would cheapen them or or make them like far less uh um, authentic is like really really um I don't know. It's, it's something compelling about both games, but it's certainly – or things. But it's certainly compelling about The Bishop to me. I thought that the shorter pieces did a ton of heavy lifting in this book in, in really, really wonderful ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, would you recommend these? <laughs> <laughs> would I recommend these? Um, I mean, without a doubt, I would recommend A Constant Hum. I think that um, most people, if they like fiction, if they're interested in Australia um, – I don't know. I think that if you're interested in people, people's reaction to um, to tragedy, um, then it's it's yeah, it's it's incredible. And I think that um, I like reading this um, in the midst of um, COVID nineteen stuff going on, which I wouldn't necessarily 
you know, you wouldn't imagine that you would like to read this kind of stuff. Um, I know a lot of people are reading kind of like pandemic text right now or dystopian text. And it's like, that doesn't really interest me. But what does interest me is in this, this actual real human reaction to, to tragedy and how we're, um, how you're able to rebuild and move on as, you know, these things go on. Yeah, I agree. I think like the, the pandemic fiction stuff doesn't work for me either. No judgment if it works for you. That's fine. Um, but I will say like the, it doesn't work for me. And what does work for me about this is, as you say, like the, the vision of like, it doesn't shy away from showing something that really happened and is really bad and really changed these people's lives forever. But it also while doing that does not say like, Oh, and also like nothing ever gets, you know, nothing ever gets better ever again. It does hint towards, you know, there's a future after this as well, which is something that I think a lot of people, um, you know, might find therapeutic at this point. Yeah. I think that therapeutic is a, a good way to look at things. It doesn't focus so much on the, the in, immediate fear and terror, but the, the, fear and grief of moving on mm-hmm. more so. Um, and Firewatch, Fire, I would recommend Firewatch. I think that if you, um, if you have about three, three and a half hours, it's pretty short, and yeah. you, you have to be, I think, emotionally ready for it. I'm, you know, glad that I, I wouldn't play this game if you're like in a bad headspace or anything like that. I think that you, you kind of have to be ready to play a game that is, grim (laughs) yeah and like i think like you know if you are having you know current issues with a family member with dementia or you you know recently had a bad breakup or something like that might not be the game for your if you had a child die this is not like the game for you at this moment yeah and i i mentioned a couple of times that it's a grim game but i do want to clarify that it's not ghoulish in any sense that um it's not like reveling in in grief um it i think that it handles everything very respectfully and and realistically i feel like this is the kind of and maybe this is like too much of a hot take to to (laughs) to sort of drift towards the end with but um I, I mean, I, I feel like it's sort of like what gone. It, it does what Gone Home was trying to do a little more effectively um, in like conveying. <laughs> that is a hot take, right? <laughs> I know, I know, it's unfair. I like both games. I mean, I should be clear. I think both games are great, um, but like, I think the way it presents you with like a space to play in and a plot that you have to unfold yourself and you become immersed in because you are kind of like, you know, you become the person doing it, uh, which is like the, the ultimate sort of goal of a walking simulator in a lot of ways. Um, you know, I think, I think Firewatch just does a, a, a slightly better job with it. I think like if you, if you liked Gone Home, you'll like this game. And I, I think it's even better. Yeah. I think that if you had the game spoiled for you, like we have just done for you, if you haven't played the game yet, um, might lose a little bit of its punch because yeah, um, it definitely it definitely is a game that feels like it's we've talked about feels like it's going to be like the spooky mystery game and like you're un- 
covering this um, like government conspiracy, which I was very surprised when playing it because I had never heard that about this game, <laughs> that it was like a mystery game. Um, so it makes sense now why I hadn't heard that, because that's not what it's about. Um, and no one can talk about it unless they uh, <laughs> unless they <laughs> spoil it for you. Yeah. Um, but really like how I was, um, I think pitched Firewatch was that it's a game about, um, isolation and these like, um, distant relationships and um, I don't know. Yeah. I I guess that is what it's about. It's about, it's about life. It's about a lot of things. Nice. Yeah, I agree. I think you're absolutely true. Right. True. Right. Oh, God. It might be time to go to bed. <laughs> um, well, uh, thank you. This has been really nice. Yeah. I've um, loved reading this book. I'm glad to be able to um, talk about Australian literature, especially from like a, this is I don't know if we've mentioned this on the show that it is like Bishop's debut work. Um, so I think that it's mm-hmm. really exciting that this is um, a debut work. And I think that this is honestly a smart way to, to do that, that you are able to kind of write about everything in your life through all these little vignettes and um, rather than like one straightforward text. Yeah. Um, no, I'm, I'm very much looking and I, I think like that's fantastic. And also it's really cool to think about what she's going to do in the future. I'm looking forward to reading more. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, uh, We'll talk again soon. I, I guess it's time to start thinking about what we're going to be doing. What's next on the syllabus? I know. It's fun to think about. <laughs> I can't wait. All right. Well, Liv, uh, thank you for being here. People can find you at AV Club, of course. Um, yeah. Or if if you like book stuff, you can find me at AV Book Club on Instagram. But truly, all I post on there is books. So if you don't like books i don't know why you listen to this and also you won't little little weird that you listen to this yeah a little (laughs) strange uh but that's okay it's all right um yeah and you can follow me all the normal places and um i'll uh i'll talk to you all soon all right bye. bye